Turn your Bibles this morning to Mark 15, Mark chapter 15. As we grow closer to the end of this wonderful book, laying out the life and message of Jesus Christ, which we just sang about. The song we just sang is a testimony of what should be true, how we should view Jesus Christ as all we have and all we need. But in our passage today, we find ourselves in a part of the story where those around Jesus are not viewing him in that way. In fact, quite the opposite. We're in the final days of Christ's earthly life. We just read last week about the denial of Peter as Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin at midnight, standing in this fake trial with false witnesses as the priests, the high priests are seeking to put him away, to get rid of him by any means necessary. And as we continue the story, we find ourselves in Mark chapter 15, and we find Jesus before Pilate. As we read this passage, I want you to think of a question. Do you consider yourself to be someone who loves the truth? Do you stand up for the truth? Is the truth the most important thing to you? Now, I would venture to guess that most of you, I would, I mean, probably all of you would say, yes, yes. I don't think of anyone who, saved or unsaved, would, would answer that question with a, oh, no, I don't care about, I don't care about the truth, right? <laughs> what about practically speaking? Are there times in our lives when a love for the truth loses out to other motivations? Can we compromise the truth? Can we deny the truth? Can we ignore the truth for the sake of our own ends, our own desires? As we read this passage today, I want you to ask the question, what brings the crowd to cry out, give us Barabbas? Give us Barabbas, as we'll see in this story. Let's look in Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. In straightway in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered, said unto them, Thou sayest it. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold, how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answered nothing. So Pilate marveled. Now at that feast, he released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them that had, been made, that, that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude, crying aloud, began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Will you that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy, but the chief priests moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. And Pilate answered and said again unto them, What will ye then that I shall do unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said unto them, Why? What evil has he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, Crucify him. And so Pilate willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him 
to be crucified. Let's pray and ask God's guidance in his word this morning. Lord, we come to you humble, knowing that we have sinful hearts and deceitful hearts. And we see in our passage this morning, Lord, your son standing in front of a crowd, of a mob, crying out for his crucifixion. And we see ourselves in that crowd. And yet we thank you, Lord, that you went to the cross, that you died for our sins. I pray, Lord, that this morning we would see both the seriousness of sin and the hope of the cross. In your son's name we pray. Amen. As we look at this passage this morning, I want us to see something really interesting. We're going to see truth and the compromise of it. When we look at Jesus Christ standing before Pilate, he had already stand before the Sanhedrin, now he's standing before the crowd. Does anyone think that Jesus is actually guilty? No. Everyone knows Jesus is innocent. We know that Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. In verses 1 through 5, he's brought before Pilate. Jesus has, had just stay, stood trial at midnight, and so the priests wait until morning, and they know that the chief priests, in order to kill Jesus, which is their plan, they had to bring him to the Roman authority, because under Roman rule, the, the Hebrews were not allowed to, to exercise capital punishment. And so they had to bring him to Pilate to convince Pilate that Jesus is guilty. In verse 2, Pilate asks Jesus the question, Are you the king of the Jews? This title is emphasized by Mark in this chapter. We see it in verse 9, verse 12, verse 18, verse 26, verse 32. But where did Pilate come up with this title? It seems in Mark's account, just kind of out of the blue, are you the king of the Jews? Why does, why does Pilate ask this question? Well, most likely, from this, 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 uh, this title comes from the priest's own accusation. If you look in verse 3, it tells us that the chief priests accused him of many things. We know last night, in the midnight, when they were standing, he was standing before the Sanhedrin, they brought all these false witnesses, and they couldn't agree in their testimony, and it was only when Jesus said, I am who you say I am, I am the Christ, that they said, that's what we need. But when he, they bring Jesus to Pilate, they don't bring just that accusation, they bring everything. They just throw the kitchen sink at Pilate, and just hoping that one of the, thing, one of the things they say sticks. In fact, if we read Luke's account of this story, in Luke chapter 23, verse 2, we read that the, that the chief priests began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So in the accusation, you see, number one, uh, false motives. You see outright lies forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. We know Jesus said exactly the opposite. He said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and under God the things that are God's. So they're throwing lies out there, and they conclude by saying, he is the Christ. He says he is a king. And while the Messianic claim was the only one the priests really cared about, they threw everything at Pilate to see what would stick. And so Jesus, or Pilate asks Jesus about this Messianic claim, and Jesus responds, well, you have said so. You've said it. As if to say, you're right, I am a king. Probably not in the way that you're thinking. But to all the other accusations, as they continue to hurl these accusations at Jesus, Peter, uh, Jesus remains silent. We read in our passage, this amazes Pilate. We continue reading in this passage, in the other gospel accounts, it's clear that Pilate is convinced that Jesus is an innocent man. He finds no guilt in him. And when the crowd later calls for his execution, Pilate asks them, well, why? What evil has he done? Implied answer, he has done no evil. I find nothing wrong in this man. 
And, and Pilate's not a friend of Jesus. He's not biased toward Jesus. As our passage will show, he's actually a pragmatist, not an idealist. And yet he can't get over the fact that there is an innocent man in front of him. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. The priests know that Jesus is innocent. Now, this should be obvious to us from the previous passage, but as the story unfolds, we find that the hypocrisy of the priests was so obvious that even Pilate spotted it. Look in verse 10. When Pilate is calling out to the crowd, shall I release to you the king of the Jews? He says that because he knows that the priests delivered Jesus to him out of what? Envy. Pilate looked at Jesus and said, they're, they're jealous of this guy. This, this guy is competition to them. And in fact, he knew, I'm sure he knew that the crowds were following Jesus and loved Jesus. And so Pilate, trying to get out of a sticky situation, thought to himself, well, the crowds will be on Jesus' side. And the, the priests are just delivering him over out of envy. So if I ask the crowd, hey, you know, if you, do you want Jesus? They'll say yes, and then, and then it'll be them versus the, the priests, and I'll be out of the situation. And he's shocked by their response. But the priests know that Jesus is innocent. They wanted him eliminated. They knew that Jesus wasn't guilty of anything. They knew that they were killing an innocent man. But Jesus was a threat to them. He, they wanted him out of the way. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. The priests knew that Jesus was innocent. The crowd knows that Jesus is innocent. Were the crowd's objective seekers of the truth convinced that Jesus was guilty of death? Of course not. The envious priests stir up the crowd to choose Barabbas instead. And when Pilate asks the crowd, what evil has he done? Did the crowd respond with a list of, of things that he's guilty of? No, they just shout louder, crucify him. They had no objective reason. They weren't weighing the evidence. In, in typical mob mentality, they just shouted louder that they wanted Christ to die. Everyone knew that Jesus was innocent. He was not supposed to be there. I asked at the beginning of the sermon, are you a lover of the truth? Is there anything that would actually motivate you to compromise the truth? Here you have Pilate, the priests, the crowd, all convinced they know Jesus is innocent. On top of that, we find another character in this story. There's a tradition we read about in verse 6 of our passage that happened every Passover. Look with me in verse 6. Pilate, on the Passover, would release one prisoner to them, whichever one they asked for. We know that Jesus was a prisoner, but in verse 7 we meet another prisoner. His name is Barabbas. And just like everyone knew Jesus was innocent, everyone knew Barabbas is guilty. We read of him in verse 7 about someone who's involved in an insurrection. And it seems that the insurrection was known to the crowd. It's called the insurrection. Rebellions and insurrections were popping up regularly. This seemed to be one that everyone was familiar with. This was the insurrection. His name was known. The priests were able to compel, persuade the crowd to choose Barabbas on a first-name basis. He was a known figure, most likely with a level of popularity in the crowds as a zealous insurrectionist. So his name was known, the insurrection was known, his crime was known. He wasn't just an insurrectionist. In his attempt to rise up against the Romans, he had committed murder. This was a convicted killer. Everyone knew Barabbas was guilty. 
And he was right where he was supposed to be. And yet, faced with the decision to choose between a guilty Barabbas and an innocent Jesus, the envious priests wanted Barabbas. And they convinced the crowd to choose Barabbas. And as a result, result, the crowds want Barabbas and convince Pilate to release Barabbas. I want to ask you this question. What brings someone to choose sin over righteousness? What brings someone to choose guilt over innocence? What brings someone to choose Barabbas over Jesus? As I mentioned, we like to think that we're objective in our decisions. We say that we're on the side of the truth, and yet there are strong influences and desires that arise from within our own hearts that are powerful enough to reject the truth, and not only reject the truth, but knowingly reject the truth. Had we been in the crowd that day, we probably would have been shouting out with the crowd, give us Barabbas. What we know to be true is often not a strong enough influence to overpower the sin that arises in our own hearts. It certainly wasn't enough for the people in our story. For the priests, what overpowered their knowledge of the truth? They knew Jesus was innocent, but their envy was powerful enough to override the truth. For the crowd, what overpowered their knowledge of the truth? Their desires. What about Pilate? What overpowered his knowledge of the truth? Pragmatism. And so we need to ask ourselves, what influences are powerful enough to cause us to knowingly and willingly reject Jesus and choose sin? What I want to do this morning is look at the different characters, the different groups that we see in this story, because Mark makes it a point to show the motivations of every single one. The motivation of the priest, the motivation of the crowd, the motivation of Pilate. And as we go through these different characters, we're going to see ourselves, I think. And we're going to see that, you know what, I would choose Barabbas, because we have the same sinful heart. Let's look, first of all, at the pride of the priests. One continuous theme throughout the Gospel of Mark has been the crowds following Jesus. If you did a word study in the Gospel of Mark and just find all the places where the word crowds shows up in the Gospel of Mark, it shows up time and time and time and time again. And in every situation, the crowds are flocking to him. They love him. They're following him. He was popular. Everywhere he went, people followed Jesus. And soon his teaching was seen as more authoritative than the scribes. He was winning over people from the scribes, from the priests, to Jesus. And it was when Jesus overturned the tables in the temple that the chief priests started to plot his death. If you were to go back in Mark chapter 11, verse 18, we read this, that the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They saw the crowd's reaction to Jesus, that they were astonished at Jesus' teaching, and that induced fear in the hearts of the priests, and they said, we need to get rid of this guy. They were losing their power, their their authority, their influence, and that is what mattered most to them. It mattered so much that they intentionally brought lying witnesses against him in order to kill him. They had no concern for the truth. They knew the truth, But they were willing to reclaim their power and authority by any means necessary. This is the heart that asks the question, how can I win? Those who seek power and authority have a hard time accepting Jesus because he's seen as competition. To believe in Jesus is to acknowledge who he is, one who deserves all the glory and all the praise. But when your desire is to have all the glory and praise, 
Well, Jesus becomes a threat. Someone to envy rather than embrace. So when Jesus threatens your power and influence, you choose Barabbas. Why do some people reject Jesus Christ? I think there's many people that see Jesus, see his claims, being the son of God and and his his sacrifice for our sins, and in their minds, they, they see the truth. But there's a more powerful influence. When my life is all about me, I discard Jesus because there's already one authority figure in my life, me. To believe in Jesus is to admit that he is right, that he calls the shots, that he deserves your worship. And if you have reserved all of that for yourself, then the competition must be eliminated. You may full well know that Jesus is who he says he is, but that's not enough for you to follow him. I believe the priests knew who Jesus was. They saw his miracles. Can you imagine seeing the miracles of Jesus? healing people, and they still chose to eliminate him. Why? Because the most important thing to them was their own power, their own pride. Pride is such a powerful influence. You can willingly and knowingly reject what you know to be true because you love self. The pride of the priests can overrule a desire for the truth. What about the crowd? We see the delusion of the crowd. As I mentioned, all throughout the Gospel of Mark, the crowds love Jesus. They follow him everywhere. The first time we see a crowd kind of turning against Jesus was when Judas brings him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and scribes and the elders in Mark chapter 14. All of the other occasions, the crowds are on Jesus' side. So the priests are trying to win the crowds back. In their pride, they're trying to stir up the crowds against Jesus because really the crowds is what their main concern was. The crowds were going after Jesus. They wanted the crowds. And so what do they do? Well, they tried to convince the crowds to turn against Jesus. Well, how could crowds who once loved Jesus turn against him so easily? How could they go from waving palm branches in Mark chapter 11 shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to crying out, crucify him. It was shockingly easy. You know what all the priests had to do was? They just had to give them an an alternative. In Mark chapter 15, verse 11, it says, the chief priests stirred up the crowds to have him release for them Barabbas instead. So how did they stir up the crowds? Well, they didn't go around to all of the crowd, people in the crowd and say, let me tell you everything that Jesus did. Let me convince you of his guilt. You know what they did? They went around to the crowd and said, what about Barabbas? Have you thought about Barabbas? Perhaps it was because Barabbas was everything they hoped for in a, in a Messiah. Someone who would rise up and rebel against the Roman authorities. Something that we've seen that the people have been hoping Jesus would do, and Jesus keeps disappointing them time and time again. So perhaps they saw this insurrectionist, this this murderer, and think, you know what? That guy has bravery. That guy has courage. That guy is someone we could follow. And while they were once following Jesus and loving Jesus, when the priest simply whispered in their ears, what about Barabbas? They turned on Jesus. Whatever the reason, the crowd quickly and easily become fans of Barabbas. They have no reason to think that Jesus was guilty. And they didn't even try to prove that Jesus was guilty. They just wanted Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. The heart of pride says, how do I win? The the, the heart of delusion says, what do I want? Your desires can win easily over the truth. 
many people reject Jesus simply because they want something else more. They found a different Messiah, a different option that just lines up better with what they want. When Jesus competes with what you want, you choose Barabbas. You know, it's shocking how little we care about the truth. We say, yes, I care about the truth, but when you really just examine our own lives, we see we don't care about it very much at all. Most people follow a certain path, adopt a certain worldview, live a certain way, not because they have come to a rational decision that the scripture is false and their way is objectively true, but simply because their particular religion or way of life agrees with what they already want. Do you know that's how often we choose to live our lives? We start with, what do I want? Now let me find a a worldview, a system, a way of thinking that agrees with what I want already. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4 says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate to themselves teachers who suit their own passions, their own desires, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We believe whatever matches the desires we already have, and we will exchange Jesus for something else, or we'll turn Jesus into something else. We see in scripture that it is always a competition between a belief in the truth and a desire of our own flesh. In fact, in the last days, we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, that God will send the world a strong delusion in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And there's the competition. Believe the truth or have pleasure in unrighteousness. Our desires are so strong that can be very easily win, can, they can very easily win out against the objective truth. And if you don't desire truth itself, you'll find satisfaction in a lie. The crowds know Jesus is innocent, Barabbas is guilty. But the envious priests were able to cater to the the crowd's desires and and offer them an alternative. What about Barabbas? He sounds good. And just like that, they go from waving palm branches at Jesus to shouting out for his death. How deceitful is your own heart? How easily can your own heart be deluded against Jesus toward a lie? Ask yourself, why am I living the way am I living? Is it based on the truth? Is it guided by the truth? Or is it guided by my own desires? If you were in our small groups this morning, you read a passage in John where John, or Jesus tells Pilate, I came into this world for the purpose of testifying to the truth. That's what Jesus came to do, to show you the truth, the way. And yet, our own desires guide us a different direction and we're deluded in our own hearts and minds and that can win out against the truth. What about Pilate? In Pilate, we see the power of pragmatism. Pilate is completely convinced in Jesus' innocence. He knows that Jesus has done nothing wrong. But Pilate is a guy who is driven completely by pragmatism. At first, he appeals to the crowd to release Jesus, assuming that Jesus is still popular with the people. He'd love to get this innocent man off his hands. And so Pilate is actually shocked when he hears the crowd's animosity toward Jesus, when they say, no, give us Barabbas. And so he asks a second question in our passage, well then, what should I do with the king of the Jews? If, if you want Barabbas released to you, what am I supposed to do with Jesus? And their overwhelming answer, crucify him. And so what does Pilate do in verse 15 of our passage? 
Wishing to satisfy the crowd, he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. As soon as he saw that the crowd was against him, and there was no point in fighting the crowds. He knew it was true. He knew that Jesus was innocent. But then he had to weigh a decision at that point. Do I stand by what I know is true, or do I go with a decision that works for me? He was a pragmatist. He was a politician. What am I going to do that works for me? In Matthew's account of this story, in Matthew 27, verse 24, it says, when, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd, and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. He, he called out for Jesus' innocence. He said, this man's, I find no guilt in him. And when he saw that he wasn't gaining anything by that way of thinking, he switched, washed his hands, and said, it's all on you. Pragmatism, when, when Jesus gets in the way of our goals, we choose Barabbas. We can be very pragmatic in our, in our way of thinking. As I mentioned in John 18, that this account of Jesus before Pilate, Jesus says that he came into this world for this purpose to testify, to bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And, and Pilate asks a very interesting question in that passage. When Jesus says, I've come to bear witness to the truth, Pilate asks him, what is truth? What is truth? You know, when you give up on truth itself, you quickly become a pragmatist. When you're not even convinced that there is a truth, that there's no way of knowing the truth, well, what do you divert to? Well, you can divert to whatever I want, or it could just be whatever what works, what works for me. When Jesus gets in the way of your goals, you often choose Barabbas over Jesus. When Barabbas comes, becomes a good option to get you out of an uncomfortable situation, you choose Barabbas. And so Pilate scourges and condemns an innocent man. And why does he do that? Well, because it works for him in the moment. That was the easiest and quickest way for him to get out of a sticky situation. We desire the truth. We love the truth. We stand firm on the truth. But you know what often overrides our desire for the truth? Pragmatism. What works? What decisions do I have to make my, to get myself out of a bad situation? What decisions do I have to make to make things work for me? What influences are powerful enough to knowingly and would willingly reject Jesus and choose sin? It could be your pride. It could be your own desires. It could be pragmatism. Whatever it is. We read this passage and know that if we were in the crowd that day, we'd be most likely shouting out with the crowd, give us Barabbas. So what influences in your life overpower the truth? Do you see your own hearts in this story? You know, perhaps there's someone here who, who is wrestling with whether or not to even believe in Jesus. And I want to ask you, what are the heart motivations keeping you from doing it? Is it because of the truth, or is it something else? Are you wrestling with the claims that Jesus has given himself, or is it something else? Is it because, well, I want something else more? Or my own way seems better, or there's something else I'm aiming for? Are those the things that are keeping you from embracing Jesus? Our hearts can be so deceitful. If we were to flip, actually, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 3 briefly. Acts chapter 3. This is an account where we see Peter preaching to the same crowd that chose 
Barabbas. Acts chapter 3, verse 15. Acts chapter 3, verse 13 through 15. Peter tells this crowd, again, many of the same people that called out, give us Barabbas. Peter says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. He confronts the same crowd and asks them, asks them do you realize what you did? By li- listening to your own desires, to your own pragmatism, to your own envy and pride, you killed the author of life. And we see our own hearts in this story, but most importantly, we see the heart of Jesus. Because as we've seen throughout this chapter, Jesus is in complete control. Again, he looks like a victim here. But if we were to flip back five chapters to Mark chapter 10, we would see Jesus predict everything we're seeing in last week's passage, this week's passage, and next week's passage. Mark chapter 10, verses 33 through 34, Jesus says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, there's the midnight trial, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, there's them bringing him to Pilate, and they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and they will flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus is standing here before Pilate, next to Barabbas, in front of the crowd, because this is exactly what his plan was. He is going through all of this for you and for me. Because not only would we choose Barabbas, but in a sense, we are Barabbas. Here stands two men, one innocent, one guilty. And Barabbas has every reason to be executed. Jesus has every reason to be released. And yet, in this story, we see the guilty man go free. We see the innocent man cursed. Barabbas, a thief and a murderer, should have been on that middle cross between those two other thieves. And yet, Jesus hung there instead. And this is exactly what was prophesied of the Messiah from the very beginning. As we read this morning in our scripture reading from Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one with, from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way. There's the pleasure, there's the, there's the desires, there's the envy, there's the pragmatism, your own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, the apostle Peter says that Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Here stands Barabbas, the guilty criminal, being released and going free. 
And here we see Jesus, the innocent and righteous Son of God, being condemned and killed in our place. Turn over, if you will, briefly to Romans chapter 5. Here again in Romans chapter 5, we see the substitutionary death of Christ on our behalf. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died died for us. Jesus stood condemned in our place. Jesus stood as guilty despite his innocence. And we stand innocent in spite of our guilt. This is what Christ did for us. Not only, not only would we stand in the crowd and choose Barabbas, choose our own sin, choose our own desires, choose our own pride over Jesus and shout, give us Barabbas. But we also stand there condemned as Barabbas. In Christ, in his goodness, in his plan, stands in our place. You may be rejecting Jesus, not because you love the truth, but because you love your own pride. You're choosing Barabbas. And yet Christ stands as your only hope. And back in Acts chapter 3, when Peter says, you killed the author of life by asking a murderer be granted to you. Surely, is there any hope for someone like that, that kills the author of life? that chooses a murderer over the Christ. Surely these men are hopeless. Surely these men are condemned. And perhaps you in the same way are sitting here thinking, yeah, I've rejected Christ. I'm choosing my own desires, my own pride, my own pragmatism. I'm rejecting Christ and choosing Barabbas. Is there any hope for me? Is, is, is it such a, such a crime that I am past hope? Well, in the same passage, Acts chapter 3, Peter continues speaking to the same crowd. And he says this, And now, brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Why did Jesus stand before that crowd, that mob, that was shouting, crucify him, crucify him, and took that willingly? because he was standing there to blot out their very sins that they were guilty of in that moment. Why should you accept Jesus Christ? Why should you lay down your pride, your own desires, your own pragmatism and say, yes, Lord, I want you to be my savior because he is the only one who can blot out your sins. Will you repent and turn back? You are Barabbas. You're the guilty one. But because of what Christ did on that cross, dying in your place, taking your sins upon himself, taking your punishment, your sins can be forgiven. You may be shouting out, give us Barabbas and how you live, how you're going through life. But perhaps this morning God is working in your heart and it's time for you to cry out, give me Jesus. You're the only hope. You're the source of my salvation. I need you. We see our hearts in this passage we see how easily we can go against the truth for what we want. But most importantly, we see the heart of Jesus Christ 
who went through the trial, went through the, the betrayal, the rejection, next week going through the mockery and the blasphemy, and ultimately dying a horrible death on the cross. Why did he do all of that? He did it for you, so that you might turn to him. You know, that's why we even give thanks this morning. This is why we gather as a church, because of what he has done for us on the cross. Let's pray together. Lord, we are humbled by our own sin, by our own tendency to turn away from you toward what we want, toward what works, toward what helps us win. But Lord, we thank you that you did stand there as our substitute, dying in our place, taking the guilt and giving us your innocence. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who is wrestling with what to do with Jesus, wrestling with their own desires or their own pride, Lord, I pray that through your Spirit you might open their eyes and see that it's only through you that they can truly see the truth, that they can truly have peace and forgiveness of sins. Lord, I pray you'd help us all to guard our own hearts in the ways that we compromise the truth every day, that we reject what we know your Word says because we know what we want. Lord, convict us. Bring us back to you. And Lord, we thank you so much for t dying in our place, for standing in our place and taking our punishment. We thank you for the gift of your son. In your son's name we pray. Amen.